Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Landides, and I want to thank you for taking the time to join us for today's show. On the episode today, we have gorgeous George Garcia, MMA junkie radio OG, uh, just one of the one of the top guys in MMA radio uh, and MMA podcasting. A really, really great guy. He's been gracious enough to give us some time, and we get to talk about some really cool stuff. We delve into Strike Force's talent influence on the UFC and on Bellator that's even being felt to this day. We talk about if the UFC would be where it is today without Strike Force. We talk about the the day that uh, George learned that Strike Force was being acquired by the UFC. We also hear him talk about his experiences at the very first Playboy Mansion show that Strike Force put on. Uh, we get his thoughts on a multitude of Strike Force fighters, Kung Lee, uh, all kinds of guys. So it's a really great conversation. Hope that you enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get to it. All right, on the line with us, we have gorgeous George Garcia, one of the OGs of uh, of MMA journalism, part of uh, the MMA Junkie radio team, which is one of the OG MMA audio shows out there. A longtime MMA journalist. In fact, uh, just as an aside, I was uh, our most recent episode was on the um, the Playboy Mansion show, and as part of that, I was looking up you know photos that I could tweet out of the event, and lo and behold. I saw gorgeous George and his brother with a little less gray hair, to be honest with you, a little less gray hair, but, but I saw, saw you guys uh, front and center. So you guys were there the night of the, uh, the playboy, the very first playboy mansion show. So I, before we jump into this, I'd love to just, you know, kind of get your, your thoughts on the event. What did you, what did you think uh, being there? Well, um, let me see how I go about this at the time, Phil, Goes and I were fanboys. To this day, we're still fanboys, honestly. We're not really proper media. I mean, I appreciate the kind words, what you've said. And we've tried our best to evolve and be uh, professionals, you know, under the tutelage of Dan Stupp, the original OG of MMA Junkie. And now Simon Samano is our managing editor. I try and soak up as much from them and all the others along, you know, that are part of the Junkie team. Matt Erickson, uh, John Morgan. But in reality... We just thought it'd be cool to be at the Playboy Mansion. I don't see why I should lie to your audience in any way. Let's just tell it like it is. We thought, <laughs> man, we got a cool podcast with Frank Trigg. Whoa, there's gonna be fights at the Playboy Mansion. We're in. You know, you could have told me that. You could have told me that the fight card involved uh, ten fighters who were 100 and 0 against ten fighters who were 0 and 100, and we wouldn't have even cared about the mismatches. We were just going to the Playboy Mansion, and so. Uh, Frank Trigg pulled some strings. He got us in there because I think only every outlet only got, was supposed to get one person. And we weren't with Junkie yet. We were Tag Radio, Trigg and Gorgeous George. Ah, so okay. Frank Trigg got us in through a publicist friend of his. In fact, when we boarded the bus, we had to park at UCLA and transport our way over there. So just getting on the bus, I think Trigg finagled us on. And then when we got on and waited in line... Basically, that's when we found out when the guy waved us through that we were going. <laughs> so we, we took a, like a two-hour drive from Orange County up to UCLA with traffic and all just to for this roll of the dice, you know. But we got in there. It was a really cool event, just like how Scott Coker always seemed to be uh, thinking outside the box, you know, like cool mm-hmm. venues, cool settings, great ideas. Let's do it. Let's try it, you know. 
And so we were there. It was awesome. There was some great fights. Quick little story, too. Sure. We, uh, Jorge Masvidal was on the card. And That's right. Arguably the biggest name in the sport right now because McGregor's retired, remember. And uh, Jorge Masvidal was there. We, have, we were looking over his bio, and he was half Cuban and half Peruvian. Now, a lot of people only hear the Cuban side because that's him. You know, his dad is uh, a Cuban. So Jorge's a proud Cuban-American. His mom's Peruvian. But what drew us to the Peru name of, the, you know, the, 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 the country was our mom's from Peru. And we thought, oh, that's cool, you know. Uh, again, two fanboys who are probably going to cheer for this guy, even though you're supposed to be objective. <laughs> Not supposed to, right. Exactly. So, uh so we thought, oh, okay, um, that, that's awesome. Uh, let's let's meet this guy. Let's maybe interview him or something. Because at the time, my brother goes, he had this blog on MySpace. He, he was pretty big on MySpace. He was in the top ten of all the bloggers on MySpace. So we would just do stuff for that, I guess. Uh, we weren't with Junkie yet. And he complained that he had no sponsors. So we thought, well, we have a tag radio banner. Do you want to just walk out with that? We'll give you... We'll give you some money, you know, a couple hundred or something. He goes, yeah, let's do it. Because everybody's walking out with either a flag or uh, a banner or whatever. He had nothing. He was just kind of raw and new into the game a little bit. So we gave him that. And what happens? <laughs> as, as we're watching the fights unfold, we had had a few drinks. We had had a few, uh, we had had some food. We had already walked the grotto, everything. Now we're just kind of chilling, watching the fights. Jorge Masvidal walks out with no banner. We were so disappointed. Not even mad, just disappointed, you know, because we were hoping, obviously, that it would just be seen. And, and by the way, that's something we hold over Masvidal's head even to this day. You still owe us, you know what I mean? <laughs> now he could probably do, like, an Instagram post and charge us 2000 the other way. But right. um, so either way, I mean, we, we forgot about it. Like, I mean. It was a great night. There was some great fights. I remember Hugh Hefner was out there for a little while, and right. I think by the sixth fight, he tucked in. He was like, okay, I'm over it. I'm old. And uh, <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, they had uh, the, the the bunnies. They had good food. Um, Jake Shields and Frank Trigg almost got in a fight. Uh, nice. Yeah, it was a lot that went on that night. Yeah, it was – It was, man, it was we, – we covered this, and it was not a good – from an optic standpoint. And then I don't know if you remember this, but this was the event where Frank Shamrock was on commentary and made the comment about Josh Thompson being the first openly gay MMA fighter and how that, you know, just elevated their feud even further. And Josh – gave an interview afterwards, you know, obviously he was in the cage, didn't hear, but said he was looking into suing Shamrock and all that stuff. So, uh, and then the, another inexplicable thing was, uh, you know, they showed Michael Clark Duncan was there who obviously was a huge fight fan and right behind him is Joe Rogan or either sitting next to him or right behind him is Joe Rogan. And the announcers don't call that out. And I'm like, you've got the color commentator for your competition sitting right there and you get him on camera and you don't say anything about it. Like it, it just, there were a lot of there was a lot of weirdness, a lot of head shaking comments and moments, and and the fights you mentioned of hundred and zero versus zero and hundred, there were some definite mismatches on on that card, and it, it just was not a great event overall. But you know, it was like you said, Coker liked to sh likes to try new things, and he definitely did that that night. And they ended up going in back and doing a second event, and I believe that's been the last MMA event ever done at the Playboy Mansion, and probably the last one ever. So. Uh, but yeah, I threw you a bit of a curveball there. I just happened to remember that I'd seen some pictures of you guys like standing in front of a fountain or something like that, and so I had to I had to hit you with a question on that. Yeah, we managed to get inside the cage 
inside the hexagon and um i think we may have done a couple others and that was really part of that was um eric foster was his name one of my partners because i was a, a partner in junkie uh at one point and he suggested that we go over there and take a picture we had a a loose relationship with them at the time in fact they may have been ufc junkie at the time i know they had to change their name at one point within the first year uh or they may have been mma junkie i think they were mma junkie because the photos that i've seen that are junkie photos all have the watermark for for mma junkie so i think they were MMA so that junkie. switch must have just happened so if not for them we probably would have had no way to prove that we were ever at the playboy <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's we've all got those stories I, my very quick one was that i went to a wec event down in san diego where i think it was uriah faber and jen's pulver and I did not have a way of getting in. And I like brought like my, I think my brother-in-law with me or something like that. And, um, I knew Jens because I'd been working with him through his management management, I think was sucker punch. If I remember right. And I thought I might be able to kind of finagle my way in. And it, I just, you know, it was fight day. There was no way I was gonna be able to reach Jens. And he was really the only guy I could, I could really reach out to and, Ended up just basically showing up and then ended up watching it, watching the fights outside the arena at like a Chili's or something like that. So, yeah, it doesn't always work out, but uh, but yeah. All right, so well, let's let's talk about what we we brought you on to talk about, uh, which is we want to talk about Strike Force's talent influence on the UFC and Bellator, and we're going to delve into some of the the fighters that you may or may not have, for the listeners may or may not have known, uh, were part of of Strike Force that have gone on to, uh, you know, some would say bigger and better things. I mean, I, I guess you'd have to say bigger and better things in the UFC or Bellator. And, and so I wanted to get your perspective on that. So, you know, I think you'd probably agree the most important aspect, if not the most important, it's, it's gotta be top two or three of running a fight promotion is the talent. I mean, without the fighters, you don't have a promotion. We don't have a sport. So with that in mind, where do you place Scott Coker's ability to identify and cultivate, cultivate fighter talent in terms of, you know, where does he place in MMA history alongside, you know, Dana White and uh, Joe and, and you know, some of the, the, the different matchmakers over the years? Kind of where do you put him? Is he one of the top guys or is he kind of more lucky than good? He's a top guy because, in my opinion, uh, Dana White, of course, you know, he people are going to want to say his name whenever possible when it has to do with some sort of a question regarding the relevancy and importance of MMA. And look. Most of the time, he's going to be the apropos name, you know. However, uh, a lot of that had a lot of that went to the through the matchmakers. There's a lot of talent that went that by the time I got to Dana, uh, he really didn't know who they were. He he kind of gravitated more towards the big names, you know, and and started worrying more about ma- matchmaking main events and and maybe co-main events. But other than that, it was basically Joe Silva and then Sean Shelby at some point. But I think Scott Coker had more of a, a blueprint on some of the the fighters that he went after. You know, I mean, and f- first of all, women. He gave women a chance to be a part yep. of MMA. That was tremendous. Two yep. Grand Prix. Sure. Grand Prix set the stage for uh, something other than an, an actual undisputed belt, which is very important. Don't get me wrong, but Grand Prix just set the the. Uh, it put a big spotlight on a certain division. So having those, I thought was was tremendous, and uh, um, the wrestler, I, I think he had a good eye for the wrestler, and him coming from a kickboxing background, that says a lot about his open mind, you know. But mm-hmm. but probably through the whole uh, Bob Cook and Zinkan angle, you know, um, just 
the, he spotted a lot of wrestlers and, and I think he built up a lot of, of, of wrestlers. So, um, I, I just think he had more of a blueprint, like I say, on the talent that was coming through to him versus Dana, who granted, you know, he obviously, uh, cultivated a lot of the stars in the UFC early on. But I think after a few years, his job was more to just uh, talk to newspapers, be on television, right. and promote what was, what was right then and there in front of his hand. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's that's fair. I think that's a great great way of putting it. And let's talk about some of those names. Josh Thompson, Gilbert Melendez, Kung Lee, the aforementioned Jorge Masvidal, Tyron Woodley, Tim Kennedy, Jacare Souza, Jake Shields, Luke Rockhold, Hodger Gracie, King Mo, Daniel Cormier. I mean, these are just that's not even everybody, but that's that's a lot of the guys that that have gone on to make an impact. Some of them have won belts in the UFC or Bellator. I, I mean, can we say that the UFC would be where it is today without Strikeforce? I, I don't think we can. Mm, it would have taken a little longer, um, but no, I don't think so either. And if you don't mind, I, what, what's our time constraint today? Because I want to I want to share a couple oh, we stories. Don't have with it. We don't have any. Okay, let me share a good one with you. Uh, sure. I'm at a Bellator show at Tachi Palace in 2011, and um, after the show was over, I was invited to just sit down. You know, uh, they were having a post-fight dinner, and we're all sitting around. And Bjorn Rabney came down and or came over, and he ate with us. It wasn't nothing fancy. It was just one of their cafes or something like that. Um, and I was there with a few other people, uh, a prominent manager was there and we're, as we're sitting around, he casually just tells me, you know, the UFC is buying Strikeforce, right? And I'm probably eating a sandwich or something. And I think I took two bites and then, whoa, what'd you say? <laughs> and he goes, you know, the UFC is buying Strikeforce, right? And I go, Come on, you know. I mean, like, I'm trying to digest it. He said it's so like casual, Phil. Like, like everyone knew except me, and and I and I said, mm, I don't know. But a few days prior to that, you brought up Joe Silva's name. A few days prior to that, I had spoken to Joe Silva about another issue. I think it was tied to Gerald Harris, if I'm not mistaken. But um, we were talking, and and somehow we. All I wanted was clarification on something involving Gerald Harris. And then it turned into like a 45-minute talk with, with Joe Silva. And Joe Silva told me, somehow I asked him the question about the, the, the job of being a matchmaker. And he said, man, I can do this all day with my eyes closed. He goes, I'm, I don't have a shortage of fighters. I have a shortage of main eventers and co-main eventers. He goes, that's what I need more of. That, that, that's what we need. That's where we start the card, you know, building the card. And then the rest we fill in. So when that prominent MMA manager told me that, he said, you know, the UFC is buying strike wars, right? And I said, and I, at first I didn't think much of it. Then I go, wait a minute. And I go, are you sure? He goes, yeah. He goes, he goes, really? He goes, they're going to acquire the roster. He goes, they don't really want the whole roster. He just wants the, or they just want the, and I finished his answer. I go, the main adventures and co-main adventures. He goes, yeah. He goes, pretty much. And those two different casual conversations that probably should have never happened just made sense. And I actually knew the UFC was buying Strikeforce about one week before it happened because I think Bellator did Friday shows. And so I had gone to Tachi Palace after our 
Friday Junkie Radio Show, and I, I was a guest of Bjorn Rebney's. He had just told me one day, come on down, you know, and I said, all right, so I went, and then that whole thing happened. I come back on Monday, and I tell Goes and John Morgan, and these two can vouch for me. I walk in, and I go, hey, I go, the UFC's buying Strike Force, and they both laugh their asses off, Phil. They looked at me and laughed at me like like I had honestly done drugs before I walked into the uh, <laughs> into the into the uh, studio, and they laughed so hard that I think they convinced me that I probably had just been duped. You, <laughs> you dreamed it up. <laughs> yeah, I just kind of said, "Yeah, maybe that is crazy, huh, guys? Let's have a good show." We had a good show, and that was it. So that's a Monday. So if you're following on a Friday, I went to the show. I heard that. Following Monday, I come in, I tell Goes and John Morgan, they laugh their asses off. We get to Friday, I believe, and John Morgan calls me up. He goes, hey, bro, who told you that story again? Because all <laughs> of a sudden, this thing's catching fire, and it's a it's a big deal. And, and so, you know, by, by then, he's hearing what he, you know, the, the inside stuff or whatever. I remember giving him a little crap. And I go, well, 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 look who's, look who's all of a sudden asking <laughs> if I'm on drugs. Who's, who's scooping who now? Yeah, and he goes, he goes, forget about that. Tell me who said what, you know. And so, obviously, uh, I, I had to protect my source. And I, and I go, listen, this is what I heard. This is how I heard it. And I told him the same story, similar of what I told you. But, yeah, so that, now to go back to your question, the UFC needed those guys. All the ones you just named, Verdum, Reem, Melendez, Thompson, Kennedy, you know what I mean? Those Cormier, those guys had built up some name under the banner of Strike Force. We all had a pretty good feeling they were pretty good. A lot of people need for them to compete at the UFC and grab a win, and then they go, oh, yeah, they're good. But a lot of us that have sharp eyes uh, and have watched the sport for a long time see these guys compete, and and we, we can tell. We can tell who, who's, who's good. And so the UFC got there a lot sooner because they acquired a lot of this a lot of this talent that Strikeforce had, uh, Kung Lee, Melendez, Thompson, Diaz, everybody that came along for the ride had tremendous value. There's no, yeah, there's just, I, I don't, I mean, you, I think they, like you were starting to say, I think they would have probably gotten there eventually because they would have found these guys at some point, but these guys needed a platform like Strikeforce provi- provided in order to build up their profile to order to build up their resume. And, you know, there's other guys too, though, that, that didn't necessarily get made in strike force. Like they, they already had some level of notoriety, whether it was from elite XC or pride guys like, uh, like Overeem who fought early in strike force, uh, Verdun, you know, obviously the biggest win of his career will forever be, submitting Fedor the night that I nearly cried cage side, uh, you know, Musasi, Dan Henderson, you mentioned Diaz. I mean, the, the, you had, and then you had legends like Frank Shamrock and Fedor guys who didn't want to work with Dana White that, you know, were able to, again, if not make their careers, at least take another big step or have another place to apply, apply their trades. And so, you know, I, I, there's just no way to get around just the, the amount of talent that Strike Force either cultivated or gave another, you know, another platform to. And I, I think it's it just says a lot about Scott Coker and Rich Chow and, you know, the other guys that he worked with from a, you know, a, a matchmaker standpoint. I just I don't think you can get away from that. But you did mention women's MMA, and I want to talk about that. Uh, it's you can't really argue that Strike Force put them on the map in terms of marketability in North America. I mean, Cyborg, Gina Carano, Ronda Rousey, Misha Tate. I mean, Strikeforce gave them the platform that they needed to prove the viability of women's MMA. So kind of a similar question, but 
do we have women's MMA as it is today without Strikeforce? Did they prove to Dana, who had if, if a lot of listeners may not remember this, but Dana said he would never, ever do women's MMA. Did Strikeforce change his mind? Do we have the the stars we have today without without Strikeforce? Well, he says Ronda Rousey changed his mind, and Ronda Rousey may not have a platform if Strikeforce not around. Now we got to give respect to Invicta; they came along at some point. Absolutely. Bellator had also had. Uh, some tournaments, I believe, with the strawweight division, and, and they actually had a really, really stacked tournament one time. So we can't say never, like it wouldn't have happened. Maybe one of those stars, you know, even Kayla Harrison at PFL, she's she's got to capture Dana's eye because he sees the star power. So yeah, it would have happened, but not as fast. Definitely the batch that came over from Strikeforce uh, was, was key, you know what I mean? Because they had already had the huge Carano and Cyborg fight. They had already had Tate and Rousey. They even had, let's just put Tate and Rousey aside. Remember the whole Coffin Tate Rousey drama, mm-hmm. you know, as far as yep. who should be next? That drama right then and there, that's clicks. And when someone sees that the clicks around that that uh, storyline is bigger than your maybe one of your upcoming fights, you start to get a little worried, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. get this, too. Man, I, I, I'm sorry, Phil. I, I know I'm jumping around a little bit. No, but, no, but, but, but get this, too. Amanda Nunes was on the Challenger Series over at Strikeforce. Yeah, yeah. She's the GOAT. I don't realize that. If, yep. she, if Scott Coker doesn't say, all right, we're going to have our arena series where we have all the top, top-notch top guys, but at the same time we're going to have this Challenger Series, you know, and, and, and may, maybe there'll be a lesser uh, spotlight on them or whatever, but we're going to give these uh, fighters an opportunity to grow – um, you know, you, you never know. I think she had either. I think she had two fights uh, as part of the Challenger series, and that allowed her to grow. So we have to throw her in there because uh, she may not have been as popular as the other ones, but she is the goat, undisputed. Yeah, she's the goat. Yep. Nope. Yeah, it's it's. It, it, I mean, I and I, man, I always go back. Were you were you there the night of uh, Cyborg Carano in San Jose? Were you were you there in person by chance? No, I was not. All right, so I was there and. That, I mean, that was the first women's MMA, the, the first time women had main evented an MMA show in North America, um, I believe, as far as like a major event. I think it was the first time that women had, had main evented. And the buildup for that, I mean, I, there had to be a lot of questions going towards Coker and, and uh, you know, I, I don't, I think Rich Chow was on board at that point, but there had to be a lot of questions going, you know, oh, are they going to be able to, you know, sell, sell the arena well? Are they going to be able to draw eyeballs and all that stuff? And, the the atmosphere in the arena that night was just absolutely electric. I mean, that place was so ready for that main event when it hit, and when Cyborg just took Carano apart, and that was the last time we've ever seen Gina in the cage. I, it was, I mean, the place just went crazy, and it was, I mean, here we are, eleven years later, and Cyborg's still main eventing, you know, events, which is now in Bellator, which is just incredible. But that, yeah, Strikeforce really gave them the platform, and I, I didn't even have Nunez on here because she was not a huge part of, of Strikeforce, but obviously, you know, they did give her that initial platform that she needed to, you know, kind of develop and, and all that stuff. So, they yeah, did, and that was just thing. as important as giving the Lawlers, the Diaz, the Verdooms, the Hendersons of the world who had had an actual run with the UFC an opportunity to go to Strikeforce and grow. Uh, and then come back to the UFC and either capture titles or compete for titles. So, um, you know, like I say, that, 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 again, is a testament to Scott Coker, knowing when a fighter still has gas left in the tank, knowing when a fighter has potential to, uh, to, 
you know, to grow or, 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 or maybe knows that he has too many fighters and they can grow. He just doesn't have enough spots for them. So he throws them on the Challenger Series. I mean, early Daniel Cormier, same thing. He was just, mm-hmm. you know, let's just keep him off to the side before he turned into a megastar. Yeah. And there was, I mean, there are a bunch of, here's the kind of the crazy things that we're seven years past, uh, strike force shutting its doors. You still have a lot of fighters that fought for strike force that are active today. We mentioned cyborg and Amanda Nunez, uh, Shinya Aoki, Bobby green, Nate Diaz, Paul Daly, who's about to to finish things up Tyron Woodley. And then uh, we met, we talked about him on my, uh, on my appearance on, on your show, but Michael Chandler, who just signed with the UFC, he had a two fight since, uh, two fight stint in strike force, uh, Lionheart, Anthony Smith, Robbie Lawler, Derek Brunson, OSP, Lorenz Larkin, Musasi, Arlovsky, Fedor is still technically, uh, active. Same thing with Josh Barnett, Verdun, you know, Alistair. I mean, there's still a lot of guys and a lot of them are, you know, it's time to start looking at retirement or one last run like Alistair, but there's still a fair amount of guy, uh, guys and gals out there that are, that fought for strike force that are still fighting today, which again, I just think that's another testament to the, the staying power, the, you know, the booking smarts of, of Scott Coker and his team. And, and, you know, it's, it's still a legacy that's, that's still going on. So I, I think it's pretty amazing to see, you know, the, the names that were made, the, you know, the innovations and the pioneering that was done. And then the, the fighters that we're still seeing today that are still having some level of impact, whether they're a champion like cyborg and Nunez, or they're, you know, people like Fedor that are, you know, more towards the end of their career, but, but pretty amazing stuff. I, I, I would say. I agree. Scott Coker had the ability to make every show special. And I think it's because he kept it, a poor year would be six shows, maybe. Uh, yeah. a, a busy year might be eight, closer to ten, and then sprinkle sprinkle in a couple challenger shows, you know, in there. But he made them huge, huge events. Uh, even just the word Grand Prix sounds impressive. You, you're like, wait a minute, if, if you're if you're just looking at the guide on television and you see fights, and then the words Grand Prix next to it sounds pretty big to me. Let me let me yeah. tune in. Uh, but yeah, a lot of these fighters, they had that big stage and that big opportunity. Right now, the UFC, God bless them, you know, they're trying to conquer the world. They got TV contracts to fulfill. They got fighter contracts to fulfill. But I feel like we're, we're barely exhaling from one show and trying to catch our breath when all of a sudden, the, you know, the guys and gals are weighing in for the next one. It's like, right. you know, like, how can we digest them all if, I mean, there's times where I forget, Phil, like, Somebody will be walking to to the to the cage, and I hear the name. I'm like, "Who's this fool?" Oh, yeah. You know, and all of a sudden, I see the face, and they'll show the highlight from the last one. I'm like, "Oh yeah, that's right." You know, but it's just too much. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, we're and obviously COVID and all that stuff has changed things, but it, it yeah, it's hard to build up. It's hard to really build up big fights when you know, they're happening every single weekend. So yeah, no, no, no question about that. I, I'll share a quick story. You mentioned about, uh, you know, getting the news about Strikeforce being sold before it happened. And then now you just mentioned the Grand Prix. I was working for Strikeforce at the time of uh, the Grand Prix right before it was announced. And uh, I used to meet with Scott Coker monthly. And I, to this day, I don't know why he would sit down with just me. I, I, I really don't know, but he would sit down. We'd talk about ideas about stuff he wanted to, you know, put stories out on the website for that sort of thing. And I remember we met at uh, like a bagel shop in the Willow Glen neighborhood in San Jose. And I think he lived nearby there. And uh, he goes, he goes to show me something. He stops. He goes, you signed a, uh, um, oh, what's that thing where you can't reveal stuff? Um, NDA. Yeah. He said, you signed your NDA, right? 
And I said yes, and and in without even thinking, and in retrospect, realized after the fact that I had not, that I never got one or anything like that. But I was like, I, you know, I was going to keep it to myself anyways, whatever it was, because I, you know, they were paying me, and I didn't want to bite the hand, you know, so to speak. And he showed me the 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 lineup for I, the the Grand Prix had not been announced. There was nothing out there about it, but he showed me this is my idea. This is what we're going to do. And I want to say at that time he was actually trying to get it set up to be on CBS. He was trying to leverage the Showtime relationship, you know, the the, the Viacom relationships that he has, which, uh, you know, interestingly enough, he still has today. But uh, I think he was trying to get that on CBS at that time and probably fall out from like the Nashville brawl and all that stuff. It didn't end up happening. But he showed me the lineup before it happened. And I wanted to text John Morgan like right then and be like, hey, but I, you know, obviously I, I, I couldn't. But um, it was it was really, really cool. And I was so excited when he showed me that because I was just oh we're going back to the pride days and we're getting this is interesting matchmaking this is something different and and that's one of the things about the UFC sometimes is that they don't do that kind of stuff we don't see tournaments we don't see uh you know we don't see that kind of matchmaking we don't see the the kind of the circus at, uh, matchmaking from pride the fun stuff that yeah maybe it's not as pure as you know uh, an MMA purist might want but that's something that I I wish that we could see in the UFC sometimes is kind of the more the yeah like just that those interesting booking ideas and and again I think it goes back to to Scott Coker's way and his approach to to matchmaking and I, I yeah I just sometimes I wish we'd see more of that nowadays you know I agree sometimes the UFC to to use an analogy in another sport uh, you, you've obviously heard of the March Madness tournament in college basketball, right? I feel like right. the UFC would want the perfect one plays it, uh, number eight, two plays seven, three and six. Like out of all the 64 teams, they want the best eight. And look, who doesn't? But Cinderella stories are very interesting. And if you can have the number 48 seed who upset the number three seed and you have them in there, I'm telling you, man, that's, that's just as exciting. Sometimes they may have, because remember, it's just random people that decided they're ranked number 48. It's not like all 200 or 300 colleges played each other. They only get 30 games. So everybody's kind of guessing and trying to figure it out. But you would never know that there's a pretty cool team in North Dakota or um, Southern Alabama, you know, somewhere in Florida that just hasn't had their chance. But this tournament puts them there and it's the random draw. And that's where stars are made, you know, so uh that 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 was the beauty of these tournaments yeah absolutely all right well we're, we're down to our last couple of questions here um i i want to ask is there one fighter that embodies strike force and i know that's really broad but you can take it as somebody that was you know quote unquote born and bred in the promotion or somebody that you know but but when you think strike force who, who's the first fighter that comes to mind and why i guess for me it's gilbert melendez because even though he wasn't bred there, I mean, I, I saw him fight at Pride and uh, he fought in Hawaii. I feel like his superstardom that he attained was born in Strike Force. Uh, he's from the same town that I am, the mean streets of Santa Ana, California. Ah, so okay. I followed him since then. In fact, I saw him at Rumble on the Rock uh, c- cornering Jake Shields. Remember I told you about that Frank Trigg, Jake Shields angle? Yeah. That yeah. all started like in 2005, 2006 in, in Hawaii. Uh, yeah, because Trick fought there. Yeah, he fought Ramon. Yeah, he fought in the same tournament as Carlos Condit, Jake Shields, Anderson Silva, Yushin Okami, Frank Trigg, Dave, Dave Manet, uh, Hanato Verissimo. Is that the one where uh, Okami beat uh, Silva with the DQ, like the upkick DQ? 
correct. Yeah, wow. I was there. Um, Silva okay. weighed at 175 for that. It was a 175-pound tournament. Mm. And so I was there, and Trigg was coming off his notoriety of – I, I think he was basically – he was accepting that he was the number three welterweight in the world because, okay, I lost to Matt Hughes twice, and then GSP took me out, but those are the top two guys. Yeah. But you know that's not how MMA works. I mean, you still got to fight all these other these other guys. But that that whole thing that culminated with that little fight at the at the Playboy Mansion between those two, it all started in Hawaii. They just kind of, you know, uh, I think Trig. To be fair, my co-host kind of big leagued him like Jake, who you know, like that that whole type of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I had kind of kept my eye on Gilbert since then, and so Gilbert to me was. He, first, he was a Northern California guy. He wasn't in San Jose, but he was in San Francisco, so close enough. He had the trilogy with uh, Josh Thompson. Those were huge fights. They, not only did both guys have a rivalry, the fights also delivered. Um, and, you know, he basically, even though he wasn't in the UFC, on a lot of rankings, a lot a lot of websites rank fighters outside the UFC as well, including MMA Junkie. He had made his way all the way to number one, even though he wasn't in the UFC he did, you know, and so I thought he represented Strike Force well. I thought he always handled himself with class. He was never talking about, you know, hey, as soon as my contract's done, I'm headed that way, you know. And if he did, he sure as heck didn't make it public. So for me, I thought he was definitely one of those guys. Kung Lee would probably be another one, you know. He's yeah. OG uh, that that Shamrock fight. Who's who's gonna forget about that one? No, you know. So that him again, a San Jose guy. Um, I, I would say those two jump out, but the first, when you asked the question, I think Gilbert jumped out at me more, and it probably had to do with the Santa Ana angle too. <laughs> yeah, I, I my my guy's always Kung, just because he, re, I mean, he was San Jose was is his hometown, and he had fought for uh, Scott Coker in in Strike Force when it was just kickboxing, and and you know then he basically kind of got talked into transitioning, and Javier Mendez shared that story on our on our podcast, but. Uh, yeah, to me, it's Kung because he just, you know, Gilbert had gotten some pride, you know, not pride notoriety. And then he was the first ever WC light, lightweight champion. And, and so, he, you know, it kind of he already had kind of a name coming in. And so for me, Kung literally getting his first like six fights, five fights, whatever it was uh, out of his career um, in, in strike force. I mean, to me, he's, he's the guy, but you can, uh, you can absolutely make a case for Gilbert Melendez being that guy. And obviously it's subjective, but well, he was uh, my number two. Lee was my number two. Um, Melendez yeah. was my one, but yeah, I guess, uh, Lee Gina Carano probably would have been another one that just stood out to me, you know, as someone that, that proudly fought for the organization and brought a lot of notoriety, a lot of eyeballs. Where does Herschel Walker rank on your on your, on your list of? Well, probably outside my top twenty. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, he's Herschel Walker, and yeah. Phil, you're talking to a 51 year old. You're not talking to a 21 year old. So trust me, at some point, I thought I was Herschel Walker when I was a kid. This guy in 1982 <laughs> won the Heisman Trophy, and he had blazing speed. And then he played for the USFL. I remember all yeah. that, man. That guy was a was a stud. So me seeing him even dabble with MMA, I thought that was cool. Yeah. I, Hey, retired undefeated. So you gotta, gotta give him that. Uh, all right. So let, let, let the listeners know where, uh, so you get new shows that drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Correct. Is, is that, is that correct? Yes, sir. So our all shows right, so drop we're... Mondays and Thursdays, uh, on the website. If you're a podcaster, 
You can go to Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher and grab them from there. Uh, if you want to watch us live, we're on Sportscaster, S-P-O-R-T-S-C-A-S-T-R, no E in caster, sportscaster.com forward slash MMA Junkie. We have like a channel there where you can watch us. Uh, so now it's it, it's live with video and we bring guests on. And uh, yeah, you know, the, the coronavirus pandemic kind of shifted things around we're no longer at our studio at mandalay bay it's still our home we just can't go there because we'd have to wear a mask well for a while the, the casino was the hotel was closed but we'd have to wear a mask so right now we've been doing a little bit work more work from home but what it allowed us to do phil was spread our wings a little bit and we're doing a little bit more video franchises like the spinning back click the rankings report also available on, on mma junkie along with just video interviews that we have of our guests so yeah we're we're still chugging along man um almost 15 years now awesome that's amazing seriously congratulations you guys for that longevity and that's when we say og i mean we mean it you know seriously so that's that's awesome uh but i appreciate you you taking the time to be on with us i want to go out with one final question and again it's kind of kind of a broad one but in terms of of fighter talent from a a uh, an influence perspective what is strike force's legacy what is you know what how do they kind of go down in history as this is their this is their imprint on mma history i guess i'm going to repeat a little bit of what i said earlier for one the women the women were tremendous the women uh you know strike force gave them that opportunity all eyeballs were over on Strike Force before any of the other organizations. So I would say that would be kind of almost number one. But Strike Force had a little bit of what Pride did, and that was um, they gave you like a, a free reign to go out there and fight. All right. Whether you won or you lost, if you competed, you were probably going to get called back to compete again. And I love that about that. I, I love that about the Strike Force fighters and, and the culture that Strike Force created for the fighters to allow them to be themselves, allow them to go out there and do their thing and not kind of carry that pressure of of the cut. You know, the cut might be coming. And so therefore, I'm going to take the the safe route. Uh, I, I, I thought it allowed them to be more entertainers. So there, there was, you know, like I say, a couple of different factors there that 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 strike force uh, had, but to, to me, I, I thought the barn burner fights, a lot of the barn burner fights that I love, like, you know, Lawler and Manhoff, Diaz and, and Daly, for example, uh, th those were all because of the culture created by strike force. Come out here and fight, you know, and you'll be rewarded. Yeah. Sh Shamrock and Baroni had put their, put up there as far as. Yeah. Remember when he was telling them, I'm going to put you to sleep. I'm going to put you to sleep. Yeah. And, and which I, I, you know, we interviewed Frank recently and I, I told him, I don't like taunting in the cage. Like that's where my kind of purist side comes out is I don't really like that. But when he made the night, night gesture, I, I loved that. Like I, I just, I thought it was great. Well, was remember such... everything with Diaz and Nunes? That was pretty cool. Yeah. See, I'm on yeah. the other side. Um, I like a little bit of that street swag. Uh, yeah. you know, um, I, I get it that, a lot of these guys are martial artists and we do want to see respect. We want to see them compete. But I also knew that some of all these taglines that you hear as real as it gets, things like that, it has to do with the rawness of an actual fight where there's really very little rules. I can kick you, punch you, knee you, 
slam you, choke you, you know what I mean? And and the best way I can tell you is, and this sucks for anybody that's a traditional martial artist, you're not going to like to hear this, but if you told your buddies, hey, I'm, I'm having a karate tournament on Saturday, you want to show up? A lot of your buddies probably are going to pass. No, man, I'm watching college football or I'm going to the beach or whatever. Uh, good luck in your tournament. But if you told somebody Monday at lunch in high school, hey, I'm fighting the bully at Jack in the Box after school. Trust right. me, there's going to be about a thousand people there right. ready to watch you guys throw down. There's something about that rawness, and I like that that Strike Force uh, allowed that to to happen. You know, there, there was some unfortunate incidents like in Memphis, you know, and stuff like that in Hawaii. But still, man, uh, that's kind of a little bit of what attracted me. If I'm being, if I'm being completely honest with you. Yeah, no, and 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 I, you know, I don't, I don't like to admit it, but those kinds of things they make you want to watch fights. I mean, you wanted to see Mayhem and Jake Shields after the, you know, the brawl. Like you wanted to see, yeah, you want to see that stuff. I interviewed uh, Joe Riggs recently, and we talked about his hospital brawl with Nick Diaz, and he's still mad <laughs> about about that. You know, those are the kinds of things that, that they really do build up fights, and they really do, you know, they sell the feuds and, and that sort of thing. So as much as I hate to admit it, it, it is, you know, it's definitely a huge part of it. Uh, I did I, I did want to add in, as far as Strikeforce's legacy goes, I did want to add in, for me, Fedor is part of it too, because to... I'm a Fedor Mark. I mean, he is, I, I don't know that I'd say he's my favorite fighter of all time, but he's definitely up there and he's definitely my favorite heavyweight of all time. I think he's the greatest uh, heavyweight of all time. And I mean, his pride fights are, you know, just absolutely incredible. And the fact that, you know, whoever's fault it was, they couldn't come to terms with Dana. So they, you know, we never got to see him in the UFC. So strike force is, and you know, Scott Coker are responsible for introducing Fedor again, my opinion, the goat heavyweight, uh, to to North American audience, and and for that, I I think that's got to be part. Even though he didn't do well in the promotion, like I said, he broke my heart the night uh, Verdun. I was cage side the night Verdun tapped him out, or, or you know, or yeah, submitted him, and just that was just heartbreaking. I mean, that's this chaotic sound of silence that followed that was just insane. But I think you got to insert Fedor being introduced to a North American audience as part of their legacy as well. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah. Heck yeah, I would. I would uh, definitely agree with that because it was frustrating. I remember being at, uh, I'll tell you two quick little stories, real quick ones. I was at both Affliction shows, and I remember when I came back from one of them, uh, I, I think it was the first one, to be honest with you. Oh, wait, wait, did I just mess that up? Did did Do the Affliction shows, yeah, he was with Affliction before he was with Strikeforce, right? Yeah, but it wasn't like a permanent home. Whereas I think Strikeforce, I think it was just, look, this is the show. Uh, they were introducing that Wama belt or whatever. Yeah. Uh, oh, I, I think yeah. it was just kind of like a, a stopover, kind of like how WFA was for Lyoto and Rampage. Yeah, they like stopped over there before they yeah. got to the UFC. Wrong in what you said. And But I remember when I was there, and I can't remember if it was after the, the, the Arlovsky KO or the Tim Sylvia KO. I remember Jerry Millen in the lobby. Um, he had it on speakerphone and him and Dana are yelling at each other back and forth. Um, probably something along the lines of we got the best, you know, the best heavyweight, not you or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, it was really, really a big deal. You know what I mean? That, uh, Fedor is, I'm saying is 
was really, really a big deal. And I know Dana wanted him because I know every time Fedor won, it stung him, you know, and it stung yeah. him that all that didn't happen under his banner. Look how in love he is with Habib right now. You know what I right. mean? Russia's a right. tremendous market for combat sports. So that's that's one that he didn't, he, he couldn't tick that box. Uh, Scott Coker was all over it. And the other thing I wanted to say was going back to your Joe Riggs story. I actually was a listener of the Sound Off show with Ryan Bennett. And I listened live the day Ryan Bennett and Frank Trigg were talking to Joe Riggs. And Joe Riggs was telling them that story about what had happened at the hospital. I was laughing my ass off. And then at some point, because back then, I think there was only two shows. I think there was only Full Contact Fighter and, and, and Sound Off, if I'm not mistaken. So somehow the word got to Nick Diaz. Nick Diaz calls in and he's talking to Ryan Bennett and Frank Trigg. And he's, he's giving his side of it. But he must have said the phrase, I ain't no about 50 times and it was hilarious you know because he kept saying you know and if you step to me man i ain't no you know and so i went back in the room and he kept yelling and i ain't no i went back in there i ain't no you know he kept saying that we were laughing our asses off we were in the chat room laughing our asses off and when we started doing tag radio and the diaz brothers were more accessible i'd always have them on and i'd always ask them uh to finish with that phrase you know what i mean (laughs) And they did until they, I think they started hitting a little level of maturity. Uh, and and they say, all right, man, I'll do it. But I ain't saying that no more. I can't get away from that. But they'd still wind up saying it. So it was, it was pretty funny, man. Just kind of like reliving those stories. Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you, when, when Riggs got on the phone and I asked him, I mean, he MF'd and I mean, he was, he was, he's still mad at, at, uh, Nick Diaz all these years later. And later on in the, um, he was telling a story about fighting Eugene Jackson in Strikeforce at the Playboy Mansion show. And it was, end up being Eugene's final fight. And he said one of the tough parts about it was, uh, basically beating up a, a kid's father in front of his kid. Cause he looked over in the, you know, in, a, in his corner was one of Eugene's sons. And he said that was really tough for him and said, you know, you, you all the hyperbole and everything, you know, you, you don't want to hurt another guy. And then I had to jump in and be like, well, except Nick Diaz. And he said, Oh yeah, except that guy. I still loathe him and all that stuff. So all these years later, I think, I think if they got in a room together, I I, I don't know how, despite some, maturity on you know on nick's part i, I don't know that that would not break out <laughs> once probably again, so. probably yeah i think they're gonna have to get at least into their 50s or 60s and then by then yeah. they, they will have mellowed out and maybe they can maybe. chug a beer together or or, or smoke or some nj together, together yeah. or yeah i don't know <laughs> but yeah. i think they still need to cool off for another decade I think so. All right. Well, gorgeous George, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on with us today. This was this was great. Loved hearing the stories and just delving more into Strike Force. But but once again, we appreciate your time and uh, thanks for being on Inside the Hexagon. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. I really appreciate you, Phil. Great to see you back in this MMA sphere. You know what I mean. Uh, but yeah, anytime you need me, man, I'd love to be on. And and congrats on launching this this is important for people to know just how important strike force was in the history of mixed martial arts all right i want to thank my very special guest gorgeous george garcia of mma junkie radio for taking the time to be with me on the show today really enjoyed talking with him i always love reconnecting with george and it was great hearing his perspective on strike force 
uh, the promotion's place in MMA history, uh, you know, the, the stories about Strikeforce being acquired by the UFC, the Playboy Mansion, all that stuff. Uh, I really enjoyed reconnecting with him. Hope that you enjoyed it as well. Hope that you also enjoyed the very special bonus episode we dropped with El Wapo, Boss Rutten. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with him. I've never been able to speak with him before, so that was great. I, I really liked it. I hope that you liked it as well. Got to talk about, of course, Strike Force. Also got to break down things on Fedor and Bob Sapp. And, of course, Mike Tyson and, and where he's at in his training with Roy Jones Jr. or for Roy Jones Jr. and what uh, El Wapo thinks might happen after the fight. So if you haven't already, make sure you go and download that episode and check it out. Make sure you also check us out on social media if you haven't already. You can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at Inside the Hexagon Pod. So check us out there. We're always putting out content. And also, please, if you are interested at all, Reach out to me at fill at inside the hexagon.com. I would, if you want to help improve the show, if you want to give us your feedback, I would love to hear what we, what we should be doing more of, what we should be doing less of. I would love to get your direct feedback. So again, fill at inside the hexagon.com. Or of course, you can reach us at the social media channels that I just mentioned. Looking ahead, we are going to be dropping an episode next week on Strikeforce Shamrock versus Lee, which is a main event fight for the middleweight title. This is a barn burner of a fight. One of my all-time favorite Strikeforce fights. Kung Lee and Frank Shamrock put on a display, uh, put on a world-class fight. It is which is it is one for the ages. It, it, Frank gets his arm broken early on, and he, it, he just fights through it. But Kung just, oh, man, it, it's it's just... I can't wait to break it down with with my co-host, Josh. Uh, you are going to thoroughly enjoy that episode as well. And then beyond that, we are going to be having the man himself, Kung Lee. He is going to be on the show the week after that. That's going to be a great conversation. So lots, uh, lots coming up. So make sure that you are subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and we appreciate all the support. Please rate and review the show as well. That helps others find the show. So please do that, especially on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. We would really, really appreciate that. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. And we will see you soon. Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 